Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Opioids claim the lives of 115 people per day. One of them could have been me, says Timothy McMahon King, author of Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. King, who became addicted to narcotics prescribed after a near-fatal illness, recovered and learned to manage pain without opioids. In his new book, he asks profound questions about the nature of addiction and explores the cultural and spiritual roots of the epidemic. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Timothy McMahon King. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. You have written a book called Addiction Nation, which is a remarkable book. The subtitle is What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. And and it, it's partly your story. It's partly the story of just the addiction crisis, the opioid crisis in the country. And also, it, it feels like, I mean, you, you were raised in the Christian tradition, and you identify in that tradition. And it also feels like a story about Christianity that has been reframed by your own powerful experience in and with addiction. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, this was a time for me to reflect not just on my own experiences with addiction, but about what faith meant in my life. It was kind of a sifting time for me to figure out what are the pieces that can speak to my life and can speak to what's going on in the world, and what are some of the trappings that I've just carried with me uh, because I assumed that was what I needed to do or who I needed to be because of how I was raised. Yeah, and uh, you talk about in the book the the beginning uh of you sort of figuring out the process where you were addicted to uh right before you talked about the pain and the process and how it connected to opioids you said you were like five years into this journey before you were able to even talk about it and you talk about talking about it with your mother in the car and and, and that this has been it, it seemed like it had been a lonely isolating experience going through this not the pain and then seeking to alleviate it yeah the and part of what i get into in this story is that i had months after i had gotten out of the hospital from having this you know all these medical complications that i was mostly alone and at the time, too, I was also actively pushing people away. And it was that's one of the, the dangers, I think, with opioids in particular is how they function. And one of the things that I didn't realize at the time, but it helped me put into perspective my own story is opioids. They're so powerful, not because they're so foreign to our brain, but because of how closely they resemble some of our naturally existing chemicals. And with opioids in particular, it's endorphins. And in fact, when endorphins were discovered in the 1970s, the researcher who saw them was so struck by their resemblance to morphine in their chemical structure that he actually named endorphins, it's the two words endogenous and morphine. So it's the occurring within version of our body, like our, it's our, basically our body's version of morphine. And so endorphins bond us to each other, they alleviate pain, and they provide a sense of well-being. 
And so one of the things that happens, I think, in particular with opioid addiction is you can feel a kind of a false sense of connection. You can feel a false sense of, of love almost. And that's why it's not surprising for me that when I was feeling isolated in a um, time of medical crisis, that that was something that I went from being initially just dependent on to being addicted to because I was compulsively looking for that. And it's not surprising that when you look across the country with the level of disconnection we see that other people are turning to that too. You quote uh, an author that I, I, I know several people have read this book. Now it's on my list. You're, you're one of several people and several good books I've come across this author reference, Gerald May, uh, Grace and Addiction. And, and you say that you quote him as saying, we're all addicts in the sense of we all have this sort of desire for things, whether or not there are substance, chemical substances that, that have this contradiction. They kind of, we're seeking the good life, they thwart it, and yet we still pursue it. And, and throughout the book, it seems like you're trying to sort of make the line between the people who struggle with substance abuse addiction or chemical addictions and everyone else it seems like you want that line to be a little more permeable or porous that that, that it's it's not so much in us and them that, that that this situation this epidemic in the country we're in this together somehow right absolutely and i think there's you know may does a great job speaking to that on a spiritual level right there is no like addiction center in the brain there is no one switch that gets flipped and you go from not being addicted to being addicted. It's in all of the centers, or it's in our learning centers. It's the same way that we learn anything. It's the same way that we develop habits. It's misfiring of those systems. And so there is a deep truth there that when you hear Paul write about, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do that I want to do, that he's describing part of what happens in the addictive process. And so there's a deep way that that's spiritually true, but also some of the best research today shows that when you're talking about addiction, we really need to understand it on a spectrum. And it's a spectrum that for medical reasons, you want to kind of have a line that you draw and have and be able to diagnose and say, this is when we need medical treatment. But in a lot of ways, that spectrum aspect of it means that addiction might be starting earlier than most people think. And that was why I felt that I was in a situation that most people didn't get that opportunity because my doctor saw what was going on in my life very early. And like with a lot of medical issues, early detection matters. If you're figuring this out uh, early in these early stages, it's easier to treat than if it goes on for years or decades. You talk about your doctor, too, and, and him saying to you in, in a critical time, look, I'm not going to take any medication, pain medication away from you when you really need it. But you need to trust me that, you know, we can manage it other ways. And it it sounds like he was a really good provider of care for you in, in, in the truest, most holistic sense. It sounded like he really engendered your trust. He did. And what is crazy about our drug policy today is he could be criminally prosecuted for using that approach. That's actually not legal. If he saw that I was addicted, what he was supposed to do by most states' current laws was cut me off immediately. And what happens in those situations is most people, because they're afraid of that pain, because they don't feel ready for it, they turn to illicit substances. And so my doctor knew that that was absolutely terrible way to approach addiction, 
that forcing someone to, in a change into a change that they're not ready for can have a backlash effect. Um, but it was also amazing to me. I mean, he was a pancreatic specialist. My medical issue was I had a procedure go wrong and it caused acute necrotizing pancreatitis. I was in the ICU. Uh, the doctors had family come in cause they said, this might be your last chance. If you have anything else to say to Tim before he, you know, he might pass at any time. And I was not expecting a pancreatic specialist to sit down and have such a comprehensive view of who I was and my life. Because he started asking me about my job. He started asking me about what motivated me. And he realized that addiction is not primarily about him trying to control my behavior and get me to stop doing something. It's about me discovering that internal motivation for why I needed to change my relationship to the pain medicine. And in study after study, you know, you have different evidence based methodologies for working with addiction. And when they compare those methodologies, there was a big study done. They were trying to figure out which one of these was the best. And the results were surprising. They didn't actually find that one was significantly better than the other. The biggest difference was how those methodologies were applied. And the biggest driver of change was the empathy rating of individual counselors. The more empathetic, the better the results. The less empathetic, the worse the results. And sometimes it was even worse to have a non-empathetic counselor than if you had just not gone to counseling at all. Yeah, I love, there's a section in the book early on where you talk about different models and you talk about the sort of moral model of addiction where it, it's, it, it really failed. It's just, hey, these are just bad people with bad character defects. And, and it gave way to a medical model, which opened up a much more inclusive and holistic and, and, and generous understanding approach. And yet even there you say, there's studies that say like there's, a, 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 I think it's, it's a, a significant increase of alcoholics relapse when they think of it as a disease because they look, oh, all right, it should be treated by a doctor or something. And you say it's not that the medical model is bad, but then you talk about like what, how a philosopher might view the, view things or a sociologist or a psychologist or a theologian or, or a clinician or a chemist. And you, you talk about none of these lenses are wrong. You know, I think of a T.S. Eliot says descriptions are better than explanations because explanations presuppose ruling each other out where descriptions, thick descriptions, you know, you can look at a statue from over here. I can look at it from over, over there. can give a description that mutually can enrich. And it sounds like you like description over explanation where addiction models are concerned. Yeah. And that's a great way of putting it. And I think that T.S. Eliot is, is a beautiful way of drawing that out because when we're able to understand something, not just by like parsing it out and having the exact scientific definition, but when we can understand something through our connection to it, I think that's a transformative experience. And it also gives us, you know, one of the things that we forget is when we say something is a model for understanding a complex phenomenon, we are inherently acknowledging that it will have some limitations. And I think there's, especially within the faith world, when people hear that I'm rejecting the moral model for understanding addiction, they get worried because they're like, oh, that means you're throwing out all ideas of morality. When in fact, I think the two big things to understand is it's flipping the moral model on its head by saying, actually, addiction normally begins in some sort of moral pursuit, whether that is to try to alleviate pain or to try to achieve some sort of transcendence or connection with others. And at the same time, 
the, a lot of the moral issues that I think are at stake, especially when we see these broad population-wide spikes in the rise of addiction, are the moral issues we need to ask as a society. Why is it that for the past three years, for the first time since the Spanish flu epidemic back in like 1919, we have seen American life expectancy continue to drop? Because it's not just opioids, it's alcohol, it's the, you know, cigarettes are still killing about half a million of people a year. These sorts of deaths, what has often been called deaths of despair, um, are really important to address. And that's where we need to ask those societal issues, not just the individual ones. Yeah. I, from reading your story, like I'm taking it, you grew up in, in kind of the evangelical wing of the Christian church. And you'd say one of the things that caused the moral model to really have some, you, you saw the underbelly of it was when you looked at an evangelical hero like William Wilberforce, who movies have been made about this guy. He's this guy who was an evangelical Protestant in England in the 19th century, was this great parliamentarian and helped end the slave trade, you know, was in, involved in the temperance movement. I mean, this guy was like an evangelical, Christian's evangelical, and he could never lick the opium addiction, which ultimately took his life. And, and so here, like this, uh, was this a, a, a moral, a guy who had great morality or moral failure? You know, it, the, you, know you, you talk about how this, that lens just didn't work here. Yeah. And that's where I think Wilberforce, I mean, because some of this was, you know, there's that difference between like having a different piece of knowledge, right? That you can know something different and you kind of check that box and then actually embodying it, right? Like putting that into the habits and practices of your life so that that is your primary way that you respond to the world. And that's where I think Aristotle is helpful in thinking about different virtue ethics, right? It's not just about what you know, it's the habits you develop and respond and my habits are still to go directly to how did I fail morally? What did I do wrong? What expression of some sort of underlying moral problem in my life is there? And Wilberforce was what helped me kind of shift that. And it also shows that at the time, because he could access it legally, because he had the resources to do so, the kinds of damages that we often associate with opioid addiction today weren't there. I continue to have neighbors who lived nearby me as I was recovering say, but you weren't out of control. And it was like, I, I wasn't. My life was not spiraling out of control. You don't actually need to hit rock bottom in order to experience addiction. What happened was I could no longer, I was now being so compulsive about my usage. That was what was defining the addiction, not that my life was out of control. And I think when we look at people today who are addicted, especially to a substance that's illicit and illegal, a lot of the damages that we see, a lot of the spiraling down is the result of being poor and being addicted. So you're trying to steal in order to feed your addiction. It's the result of having a criminal record. So you don't have chances for as many chances for gainful employment. And so you go back to dealing and using. And one of there's one study that was done in Baltimore of all these IV drug users, and they were trying to figure out what worked to get people off. Who were the people who were going to recover? And they were surprised that in the end, the only thing they had consistent data, the only thing that they could show that definitely was a factor was if you had gone to prison, you were more likely to keep using. If you hadn't gone to prison, you were more likely to quit. 
And while there has been a lot more talk about empathy and care and, you know, treating this as a public health issue as opposed to a criminal issue, our front lines are still criminal. Our front lines are still about punishment. And we take something that is inherently, by definition, a self-harming behavior, and we continue to create more harm in the hopes that it will change someone. And it doesn't. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. The old classical model of education is in three stages, grammar, logic, rhetoric, right? And grammar is like when a kid is younger and you just learn words and facts and, and things like this. And then later when they get more capable of abstract thinking, they learn how these things connect. And then rhetoric and how to self-express is the, sort of the, the capstone. Every one of your chapters is a one word title. And it's almost like if you're saying we need a new grammar to understand this phenomenon, right? We need to revisit uh, words that we think we know what they mean and see, and, and then maybe sometimes this phenomena of addiction that's so rampant in, in the United States, particularly with opioids, but in general, th those will reinvest and, and, and will rediscover what those words mean and help us, it will help us see things in a new way. Is that, is that one of the things you were getting at as, as you structured the book this way? That actually, I'm going to have to use that as an explanation because it sounds so much more thoughtful than the process <laughs> I actually went through. <laughs> um, one of the wild things, so the book proposal I put together is nothing like the book that came out. Um, because I was learning so much about the topic as I was researching, I thought I knew enough to put together a book. I thought I knew enough to write a book. And the more I read, the more I realized that I had a lot to learn. And, but you can see that throughout, there were just these different words that I had to dive into of like, people would ask me, so is addiction a choice? And I'd realize, well, what do you mean when you say choice? And diving into that, right, that we... And I think one of the best explanations is it's clear that addiction at some point involves intentional and voluntary choices, but also no one ever chooses 
to become addicted. And that the more we understand about how to use the word choice, that actually starts to make more sense. Because most of the time in our lives, when we're talking about the things we choose, we are on a spectrum of being more or less free. And that's where, when we understand addiction, it is that process of losing that freedom of our own choices. And it's places that our brains, and this is one of the benefits of the medical um, the medical and disease model of addiction, is that it changes our brains in ways that what normally happens within conscious choice is no longer happening. Those circuits are getting re- rerouted and rewired. Yeah, I, me- I remember a neighborhood in North Philly, I spent a lot of time and seeing certain kind of people are strung out on crack and, and they were wandering around and the only thing they wanted was more crack. And that was freely, they were freely choosing that, like this, but also we're not free to choose anything else. I mean, it's weird. Like you're right that their, their brain was rewired so that they were choosing it and yet didn't have options to choose anything else. It's this paradox, right? <laughs> that exists in the way the brain works. And you know, when you start to see like how it's functioning within brain chemistry and within how our brains are wired, you know, I always thought of addiction as just like, oh man, it just must be some terrible part of the brain where in fact it is the part of our brains that allows us to survive, right? It teaches us what to go and pursue in order to get good things. And that's where you probably hear a lot about dopamine whenever you discuss addiction and dopamine is the chemical that kind of shouts out in our brain like hey pay attention this is something good you need to you know focus on you're flooded with it when you first start dating someone you really like for the first couple weeks right like uh you can't think about anything else yeah and that's a great kind of connection because there's been some studies done where they compare people who are in early stages of romantic love versus someone with a cocaine addiction and the brain scans are astonishingly similar and, and, and one the re- breakup thing similar too. like you could like an, a quick, intense breakup can feel like cold turkey withdrawal, like a, 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 some of the same chemical and brain processes. Yeah. And that obsessive thinking and a way in which you truly believe you might not be able to live without that person. And so in comparing these brain scans, one of the researchers noted that the big difference is that addiction as opposed to love continues to fall in on itself and wrap in in around itself and more and more tightly focuses on just that object of the addiction. Whereas love eventually starts to break out into more and more pro-social behaviors. So as you learn to love that other person, you're actually strengthening those parts of your brain that allow you to love other people as well. You have a chapter, and this is one of these great, you know, discovering a word that we think we know what it means. And yet, you know, when you start talking about it, you realize, oh, it, it, it's so much more complex. You talk about shame. It, Brene Brown's great. She says, you know, sh- the thing about shame is nobody wants, nobody likes it. Nobody wants to talk about it, right? And yet the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. And you say that just as shame keeps quiet the families of those who have lost loved ones to drug overdoses, shame keeps quiet those who struggle with addiction themselves. This it, it, this inability to deal with shame uh, just compounds the 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 addiction phenomenon at every level it seems yeah and that's part of one of the wild things with the opioid crisis in particular is you know we've actually had an overdose crisis going on since 1979 every nine years overdoses in the united states have doubled since that year and when one of the first waves of that like with the crack epidemic that was all over the news 
and people heard about it all the time and they were hearing about how dangerous these drugs were when the opioid crisis came along there weren't a lot of headlines about it it was small things maybe in local papers um, but the obituaries were rewritten to make sure that it didn't mention most of the time that it was an overdose and that kind of shame meant that people weren't talking about it and because they weren't talking about it we weren't addressing it and i think there was this image people wanted to live up to in different in these wealthy white neighborhoods in the suburbs and in rural areas that we don't get addicted we're too good for that and we had blamed black and brown people for their own addiction and had locked them up and had continued to reinforce this imagery of these these nice suburban communities that this could never affect and that kind of false image i think of ourselves made that shame even deeper Another, you have another great chapter where you talk about the term sin. And I think, you know, I think it will be challenging to traditional religious types and to secularists alike reading it because I think you find like that if you're, if you don't have room for this concept that you, you, you've, that you're going to have something lacking in understanding. And yet also certain traditional religious people have too narrow of a concept. And there's this atheist, Alan Depot, de Baton, uh, who's runs this thing called the School of Life, and he was remarking in an interview how he likes this concept of original sin as an atheist. And the interview asked, they, they were scandalized and said, why? And he says that, because it seems like such a useful starting point. You know, if you imagine a relationship in which two people think they're great, you know, perfect, that's going to lead to intolerable and terrible disappointment when they realize they're not great, they're not perfect. Whereas imagine a relationship that begins under the idea that two people are quite broken and therefore they need forgiveness from the other and they need to apply charity to the other and they need to forgive the other. And so that seems a much better starting point. I like these descriptions of human beings as being quite flawed and crazy and out of control. And you find that in Buddhism and Judaism and Christianity. And, and so, I mean, I, you, you're, it sounds like you resonate with that as a Christian. You talk about how Thomas Merton defines original sin as us wandering around, just looking for, in, in this kind of fragile, often errant quest for meaning and identity. And, and you say if we had this concept of sin and even original sin in a deep sense, not in a shallow sense, that we'd be better equipped to deal with addiction and addicts and how we all are, uh, contribute to and share in this phenomenon in our society. Yeah, and sin is an important concept. I, When this shift happened and for me, I go back and I read Paul, and I feel like him, he's kind of shouting out through these letters, hey guys, you know that thing inside that you feel like you are uniquely bad, or that you are doing these things that no one else will understand, or feeling these things that no one else will feel? Like, I, I am the chief of that. I am the chief person who also feels that way. And when we are able to say that to each other, of like, yes, other people feel this too. I think that is a way that it provides a deep bond and connection, and it allows us to create relationships that aren't based on a false view of self. And at the same time, a huge struggle for me was that idea of, and this is where I almost wonder sometimes, I, I use the word original sin, and I've talked to some theologians who are starting to use, who use more of the word inherited sin to try to get away from some of the other baggage, but that is like the way that you can beat yourself up about it is the, is the other end and that other danger, and that's where I think either of those shallow options don't leave us with a full expression of how we experience ourselves, how we experience the world and how we can actually connect with others. 
you talk about in a chapter called home where you talk about our need for place and belonging you talk about research that shows that three things that are exacerbate it lead to and exacerbate addiction or stress you know that comes from you know often change uh the second one is changing norms and cultural identity that, that not just a personal change but you can see societal change that really affects and displaces you. and the third one is trauma i'm wondering how do these things like how did these play out in your addiction story? Things like stress and change and trauma. Like how did, how, how did those, did they play a part in your story as you found yourself in this trap with opioids? Absolutely. For me, the biggest thing was the stress and the trauma. And I write in the book that I'm actually pretty lucky. So most people, when you look at, there's the ACE scale, adverse childhood experiences. For every point you go up, the likelihood of you becoming addicted at some point um, skyrockets. And for me in childhood, I didn't have any points on the ACE scale. I had a really good childhood, great parents, loving family. But going into the hospital, one thing I didn't realize is that, you know, I spent a couple weeks in the ICU and most people who like the vast majority of people who spend more than a few days in the ICU will end up with some sort of PTSD like symptoms within a few years. And so that stress of being in the hospital um, really did light off for me that desire. It's, you know, in my body, you're not safe. You're not safe. You need something that makes you feel safe. And one of the ways that this helped me understand is I was looking at my family tradition, um, Scotch-Irish heritage, and I had always heard, you know, heavy drinkers. And my grandfather always had a martini before mass. And when I asked him why, he said, hey, it makes Jesus go down easier. And so that was kind of... That was the, you know, family history I was coming from. And I had always heard that it was just like, well, that's just, that's just genetic. And now the best research is saying, well, kind of. Because it turns out the Scotch-Irish were not known for having wide population-wide alcoholism um, when alcohol was first introduced and when spirits were first introduced. It was actually when they moved from their traditional lands and agricultural-based society into the cities and into manufacturing. That was when we first started seeing the population-wide addiction rate skyrocket. The same with indigenous people in the United States, Canada, Australia. Didn't see huge spikes in addiction rates when alcohol was first introduced. It was when alcohol was introduced and people were moved off their land. And there's one band, the Alakai band in Canada, that went from a near universal alcoholism rate to near universal sobriety rate within about a 15 year time. And one of the things they say, I think this is beautiful, is culture isn't a part of treatment. Culture is treatment. And so that is one of those other places where we need to expand how we view addiction to not just what are the choices involved in a person's life, but what's going on in culture. The other amazing piece of research right now is there is some genetic factors to being predisposed to addiction. It's assumed that it's maybe 40 to 50%. Scientists aren't quite all on the same page there. But the big area of research is now epigenetics. What genes get turned on because of certain cultural, because of certain environmental reasons and stress, they, they're now predicting turns on certain sorts of genes that focus on survival. So focuses on getting resources, feeling safe, doing whatever you can as quickly as you can and consuming as much as you can as quickly as you can. And so when you simultaneously have a, 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 an environment that is high stress, 
but also with access to resources like low nutrition, high fat food or opioids, people are going to gravitate towards those because their genes are kicking in to say, this is what you need to do to survive. Yeah. And the wild thing about epigenetics, right, is that those things, we didn't think this was possible for that to be passed on when those genes get kicked, get kicked in. Now there's research that says maybe, you know, they've done, you know, that maybe actually not only are the genes changing, but the, that can change what's inherited, which is wild. Yeah. So the whole culture in nature versus nurture debate is the answer is yes. <laughs> we it's nature and nurture. And when we look at the generational aspects of, you know, so much of the focus was on genes because you would see parents who were alcoholics having children who then struggled with alcohol use and abuse. And now it's like, what was the factor there? Well, it was probably a little bit of both. You say in a chapter entitled Meaning, you have this great phrase. You say addiction isn't dangerous because it never tells the truth. Addiction is dangerous because it only tells part of the truth. Addiction's power is that it mixes the truth and lies. I'm wondering, how did that work out for you? What things, what half-truths were and, and lies were you believing when you were really in the worst part of your battle with opioids? Well, the first was about my own pain. And the truth was, I was still in pain. Not as much pain as justified the amount of opioids I was taking at that point, but that was still there. And what had happened previously is three times before, while I was in the hospital, I had, had doctors confront me and say that I wasn't really in pain and I was just drug seeking. Each time they actually missed a medical complication that was causing that ongoing pain. And so by the time it came to this, you know, conversation with my doctor that I described, so book, what's going off in my head is the thought of, uh, non-empathetic caregiver could be worse than not getting care at all. Like, <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. And that just kept, you know, for me, that meant I just needed to prove my pain even more. And that meant I focused on my pain even more. And that meant I experienced my pain even more. And that meant I wanted even more opioids to deal with it. And so when I had my doctor who said, I believe that you're still in pain, that created a trusting starting ground that I wasn't just, you know, in the like passionate pursuit of constant pleasure, but that I was trying to do, so I was trying to protect myself. I was trying to survive. And that was partly true. Like that was something that for a long time, I really needed those meds. I might not have survived without them because I was in acute respiratory distress. My organs are shutting down. And if you have all that stress of the extra pain, like that can be fatal. And so I felt like someone was trying to take away the thing that gave me a lifeline, the thing that helped me survive. And when I felt that I had somebody who was on my side and understood what I was trying to accomplish with those, with that pain medicine, that's when I was able to kind of breathe out and say, all right, I'm ready to hear something new. I'm curious as in your own recovery journey. I mean, I, people that I know have been in 12 step groups have talked about, you know, I'm, even well in recovery, they're an alcoholic or an addict, that that becomes part of their identity, regardless of, of the part of the recovery journey, journey they're on. I mean, is that, 
Do you identify that way as an addict? I mean, has has that been part of your story? You know, the need, the continuing identification with that. I mean, how do how have you processed that part of story and identity in your own life? So, for me, there's it's a yes and a no. Uh, on one level, I have found it important to kind of acknowledge that I walk with a limp, right? That I have, there's a thorn in my flesh and that that possibility for addiction continues to reside in me and that that's not something that's gone, gone away. And even as I was reading the book, read a lot about alcohol use and realized I'd always thought it, you know, it was primarily a binary. And then I read, oh, actually, there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who just start drinking one or two more drinks per week, and it has no negative effects for decades. But then they have some sort of trauma in their life, or they have a health event, and then suddenly that spirals them down into compulsive use. And it was like, oh, like I still need, I need to reflect on my alcohol consumption. Even though that wasn't a part of my previous addiction experience, I need to be aware that that's still possible in my life and that I, might need to change my relationship now, even though there's no problem in my life as a result of it. Now, on the other level, there is a way that I, so AA, you know, attracts kind of a particular kind of experience with addiction. And so for a lot of folks, what's important for them is lifelong abstinence. And that's very important in their own recovery. But a lot of other research shows that that's not everyone who struggled with addiction. There are people who might um, decide not to drink for 10, 15 years, and then go back and at some point later in their life, resume some sort of moderate drinking or someone who might go from very problematic drinking to a much lower level over the course of time. It's not always a big binary um, Saul to Paul moment. There's actually a lot more slowly changing behavior, but those stories aren't told as often because they're not often as, as extreme. And so there's another level where I think it's also really important to remember that there is something inside, like that, you know, the, from the beginning in creation, we were told that we weren't just good, but very good. And that's where I, I have a easier time with the ideas of original sin when we also remember what like Matthew Fox would call the original blessing. You talk about the, this study of the rat park where these where there were rats like that they were you know have chemical they would get chemically addicted and they found that when you took a community of male and female rats and put them not just in these isolated cages but in a in a, in a basically a, a recreational park with lots of fun things for rats to do and socialize that they began they they had this remarkable capacity to not get addicted to substances that were in their water bottle kind of thing and and that and it's it just strikes me today that even though in some ways we're more connected through social media and technology people are more and more disconnected you have this great line somewhere in the book where you talk about when we're not looking uh through our phone to the world but just at the screen where where there's just despair and disconnection and 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 that i mean it seems like you'd been blessed in your own journey with with lots of relational blessed opportunities and connections and and, and that it seems to me that, that that lack of relationship is what often gets people in addictive traps and keeps them there uh, which is scary because we're such an isolated society right Absolutely. And there's been various studies and charts that overlay um, maps of social capital 
and maps of high rate of overdoses and they blend right over each other. And that is where, you know, one of the things is, you know, you think about those originally, they called them Skinner boxes where the rats would be in these isolated cages. And I think one of the, the tough questions is that maybe some of the aspects of what we think of as the American dream is actually a lot more like one of those isolated rat cages than we would want to admit. And at the same time, um, you know, there has been some pushback on, on that study. And that's again, where I think it's good to know that it's another model where relationship and close relationships are absolutely essential for recovery. Lack of relationships can mean increased likelihood, but you can, and anyone who's listening, who has a loved one, who has struggled with addiction can also know and feel kind of a burden and know that they, they do have a loving connection and still that person struggles. So I think those kind of relationships are necessary for recovery, but also not sufficient. You are a, a creative and obviously have, you have very wide and varied interests. I'm wondering, did you have any anxiety or fear in writing this book that this is going to be pigeonhole you in a sense of like, you're, you're publicly saying this is a big, a big part of my story. I mean, was there fear in going public that way of, of sort of being typecast or pigeonholed or, or not being able to interpret your story anymore? Yes. And especially when I, I first wrote, like this came out of an article that I wrote that was a cover story for Christianity Today a few years back. And that was a big internal struggle. And at the same time, one of the things that I realized was so important was that because my story doesn't have a lot of the normal trappings that people associate with an opioid addiction. I didn't get arrested. I didn't end up homeless. I didn't break all of my familial relationships. I don't have any of those kind of crazy sto stories of overdose. But I, I felt a sense of responsibility to say, I'm in a good place. Um, I'm, I'm somebody who, if anyone can say this and not have it happen, it might be me, like not have that kind of stigma occur. It might be me. And because of that, I felt even more compelled to speak out on behalf of those who have struggled. Cause even though my story started in a hospital and with doctor's notes and labs to prove the kind of pain that I was in, the more I've heard other people struggle, the more I've heard other stories the more I feel that they are the same, whether or not someone's addiction started on the streets or in a hospital, we were all searching for similar things. We all needed similar things in our lives. Well, I'm glad that you chose to tell your story and, and in that article and, and then to go and write this book. It's a great book for anybody in our culture, because as you say, that, that, we're, that we're in this together and we all know someone. Uh, if you haven't personally been touched by addiction. You know someone that has, and you care about someone who has. So thanks for writing this book, Addiction Nation, and for taking some time to talk with me about it. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. 
go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Tim for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Addiction Nation. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.